because it is much more profitable to plant corn and soy, for example. That is what a vast majority of farmers are planting. Most farmers are losing money to try to do something alternative that is better for the soil, better for the environment, better for our health, but it, it's not better for their survival, for their business. You have the problems of kind of a free market fundamentalism paired with the kind of corrupt forces that are actually shaping that free market, free market fundamentalism into something, something else. Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Marlo and Nate. Today, our guest is Carmel Richardson, who's the 2021-2022 Editorial Fellow at The American Conservative. Most recently, she wrote the cover article for The American Conservative's July-August issue, which is about the American food system, and which hones in specifically on the use of seed oils, which is a topic that a lot of the right has grown interested in in the last few years, and one that has even given rise to a subculture of people, including myself, who have uh, waged a figurative jihad on hydrogenated oils. So thank you for joining us, Carmel. Yeah, thank you for having me. Before we get to our interview, we'd like to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you would like to help us in pursuing that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. Carmel, you recently had the cover issue, as Marlo mentioned, for the American Conservative July-August issue on the topic of U.S. food policy and the issue of seed oils. Can you give our listeners just a basic background about the issue of seed oils and what you were talking about in your article, and then perhaps why conservatives in particular are so interested in the issue? Yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's not something that maybe strikes you off the bat as a conservative issue, right? It's, it's kind of crunchy. It's a little bit offbeat. But the seed oils are an important thing for us to be thinking about because Number one, they're in everything, right? So, and this is something I cover in the article, but effectively, like 90% of our food production contains some of these seed oils, whether that's rapeseed oil, which is canola oil, or cottonseed oil, corn oil, et cetera, et cetera. These oils are prolific. And so the result of having these in, in so much of our food is that we not only have the health problems, which I think we should talk about and that's the big reason that most people are talking about them. But it, the other side effect is that our food sources are very homogenized. So all that we're eating is kind of coming from a couple key ingredients, or those key ingredients are are in so much of what we're eating that we are actually, like what, what we see as a diversity of food sources is actually like only a handful of ingredients that have just been repackaged in hundreds and hundreds of different ways. So as I argue in the piece, there are some real serious ramifications of that, again, for our health, but also for the way that our our food chain works, our supply chain, and just for food and farming diversity. You mentioned crunchy conservatives, which I actually, I love. And on the subject of, you know, especially this this was published in TAC, Rod Dreher's uh, characterization of crunchy conservatives, which he actually wrote an entire book about. And I, I like that because I well, I first of all consider myself a crunchy conservative. And I think that the phenomena of seed oil disrespectors, especially, which is, I mean, that's the name of a Twitter account that I follow, but I think it encapsulates kind of this almost horseshoe theory of on one end, you know, conservatives and Dreyer talks about this in his book, uh, who are health conscious, you know, they're, they're going to like local organic food co-ops, um, they're 
you know, donning tote bags and wearing Birkenstocks. And obviously you have kind of those concerns among conservatives um, that are largely shared by maybe on the other side of the horseshoe, some more lefty leaning people who are showing up at those same co-ops. They're going to uh, farms that offer regenerative um, farming practices, um, which actually is a farm that me and my husband go to as well to get all of our goods because it's all seed oil free. And uh, it's like really funny to see um, and really kind of, I mean, I think this, this topic especially frames it really well more than a lot of other subjects that are super divisive today, but um, just how much the two sides have in common when it comes to um, organic foods, seed oils, um, actually focusing on trying to uh, patronize uh, food sources that don't do damage to um, the environment, to animals, and aren't ultimately exploitative. So what are your thoughts on this growing subculture of right-wingers who are going seed oil-free, it might just be restricted to Twitter, which is where I spend a lot of my time, admittedly. But I do think that there has been there. There's definitely kind of a growing section of of kind of the the non ideological conservative camp that have become kind of more sensitive to the seed oil issue and and trying to be more health conscious. Yeah, no, I think you're right, and I think I do think it's a good thing that we're becoming more health conscious. I think this should have been a conservative issue all along. And, and Rod, as you're right, kind of points that out, um, that this is is actually very conservative to care about what we're eating, to care about the sources of what we're eating. Um, and as you mentioned, like seed oil-free farming is a really good example of why this matters, because it's not just that we have canola oil in like, you know, your French fries at McDonald's or whatever. Like we all kind of know if we're eating something like that, we know it's not good for us. But it's also like the way that canola oil is produced, you have some of the waste product is turned into feed for animals. And so that's, for example, how a lot of cows are feed finished. And so even if it says like grass fed, that doesn't necessarily mean that that cow has eaten grass for his whole life. He's usually finished on this kind of seed cakey grain mixture, which is a a byproduct of seed oils. So if they're not good for us, avoiding them becomes like this quite a process really to kind of get around the food chain as it's as it's currently set up. But I do think I do think it is a conservative issue, like I said, just because we we care about the whole human being and we care about what is good for the family. We talk a lot about fertility, for example. That's something that seed oils can affect. So it, yeah, if we care about the whole human being, if we care about what is good for the environment, this this kind of crunchiness, like, you know, maybe it's not trending in the GOP broad, broadly, um, the way that it is in, you know, the very online right. But I think that it's a good, it's a good direction that we're taking. And we should keep going down it because it does, it affects the whole human being, it affects a lot more than just, I guess, our aesthetic, which is maybe one of the one of the reasons that people have not taken it more seriously. It's funny, I'm also someone who self-identifies, I guess, as a crunchy con. So I guess for some reason, this is a crunchy, crunchy conservative podcast today, less so with the seed oil issue, which I've just paid less attention to than I think you two. Um, But I'm on the record as being conservatism's resident greenie. I've written a lot about environmentalism and conservation, you know, et cetera. Uh, To me, it seems obvious that that issue would be something conservatives care about. I mean, conservation is quite literally just conservatism. But it, it hasn't been for a while. And I think, I mean, this was something Marlo was just touching on, the interest in sort of healthy organic foods, localism, co-ops, et cetera, 
that's something that it seems like it's making a resurgence in conservatism, and particularly among young conservatives. The interests in these sort of long neglected issues, health, environmentalism, getting back in touch with sort of local crunchy communities. It's, it's something that it seems like, you know, admittedly within our probably our relatively insular sphere of young conservatives who are politically engaged, who are writers, intellectuals, etc., there is a new interest for it that is in stark contrast to a lot of older conservatives, or at least the sort of conservative movement self-conception for the last couple of decades. I wonder why, Carmel, I don't know how much you've sort of thought about the broader issue of crunchy conservatism, but CEDAWs is obviously a big part of this. Why are young conservatives in particular attracted to these issues in a way that, you know, conservatives in a previous generation wouldn't have been? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I, I think you're right that it is a generational divide. I have been doing my best to convince my parents of the dangers of seed oils, but it's it's a slow par- process. Yeah, so I, no, I, I agree. I don't know that I know w- what the main difference is, but I can say I think I think a big difference is just kind of, it, it seems to be another ramification of of the divide between, I hesitate to say boomers, but, you know, kind of the boomer generation, which... I I characterize as being very like laissez-faire, you know, like, oh, if I send my kid to a good public school, for example, things will probably hopefully turn out well. And then they don't turn out well and they didn't. And why is that? So I think our generation has definitely been more reactive to that. We're thinking a lot more seriously. We see that, you know, so many of the kids that we maybe graduated high school with have turned out they're now transgender or whatever. And we're like, there are serious problems here. We need to be actively working against them. And so I think the crunchiness is, is a part of that, where we're not just kind of floating along and saying, well, if, it, if it's a good school, if it's like, you know, fairly healthy food, if Harvard tells me to eat it, it's probably okay. We're, we're thinking a lot more deeply about it. And I think alongside that is a lot more distrust of, of institutions, um, including, you know, health institutions, especially since 2020. In your piece, you you talk about and kind of framing this in its economic kind of terms of seed oil production and how it basically fueled a part of the Canadian economy, um, it, this multi-billion dollar seed oil production industry. And you also, you know, you mentioned um, more recently how um, the conflict in Ukraine is contributing to maybe some of the supply chain issues we're seeing in seed oil production. Could you talk about, and maybe, you know, in reference to your piece, but also elsewhere, just some of the different variables and economic influences and lobbying influences that have gone into the proliferation of seed oils. I know like Kate Shanahan, who is like the patron saint of the seed oil free uh, communities, I guess. And, you know, she's, she wrote Deep Nutrition years ago. Uh, We have a copy of it at our house and frequently reference it, but she talks about how I think is the American Health or Heart Association was so heavily influenced by, you know, lobbyists for the seed oil industry or there was, you know, influence there that kind of um, caused them to fine tune their their recommend their health recommendations to make it favorable to seed oils rather than other fats. And there was a period of American history where like butter was heavily demonized and anything that had fat in it would make you fat was the understanding. And, you know, anyone who kind of does some research on that topic and just the nutrition behind it and maybe reads Kate Shanahan's book knows that fat isn't, shouldn't be vilified. 
some fats should the one you know seed oil and hydrogenated oils probably should be but what are can you talk about like some of the the players and the constituents and the people or the industries that um want seed oils to become or to stay the norm um out of pure self-interest and um financial incentive yeah yeah so i think a big part of it is the starting point right which is procter and gamble were the first kind of had the first major advertising campaign just in general, right? For like a food advertising they spent, it was like a multi-billion dollar campaign back in the early 1900s. And this was before food labels were regulated. So they could effectively say whatever they want. And what they said was vegetable oils are more healthy for you than butter. And this is because they had a new product to sell. And that product was Crisco. Um, And so they were passing out, you know, Crisco cookbooks in the streets or like Crisco fried donuts. They were, if like a woman bought a can of Crisco, she would get a cookbook that had all of these recipes that all it used Crisco in place of butter. So there was this initial push to use, and that, that's a hydrogenated vegetable oil, which is basically the worst kind. So there's an initial push to use these things um, before we even really know what we're dealing with. And then it becomes so much a part of the I guess, public food consciousness, you could say, that it's just ingrained, you know, and it's hard to kind of go back from that. And especially what's interesting to me is that these these products are they're very plastic, right? Not in the sense of like, they're synthetic, they're bad for you. I, they are, but they're also very like flexible. You can use them for multiple purposes um, in a variety of ways. And they have very neutral flavors. So they effectively are they're really good players for all kinds of foods we've developed that we really couldn't have developed without vegetable oils, particularly hydrogenated vegetable oils. So once you kind of have that in your um, in your food consciousness, if we're gonna, I guess I'll just keep working with that. Um, then it, it's hard to pull it out. And so what happened was then you have um, Fred Kumaro, who is the German biochemist who kind of started looking into the connection between trans fats and heart disease. And that's part of the problem is trans fats. Um, and they're particularly high in hydrogenated vegetable oils. And so he was lobbying the FDA for years to say, hey, we need to get rid of trans fats. And he was looking into this in 1955. Trans fats were not um, banned by the FDA until 2015. And that ban did not go into effect in 2018. So it, it was a long time coming. And I think part of that was because those hydrogenated oils were so entrenched in in food product by the time people started pushing back on it that it's, it's really hard to take that out. You have to say, oh, you know, we're no longer going to have deep fried chicken, for example, unless we go back to beef tallow, um, which costs a lot more. So there, there's that aspect of it. And then there's also, there, there's a little bit more of a surreptitious element. And this is where it just gets murky. But there was lobbying on behalf of the FDA, or the FDA, the FDA was um, requiring vegetable oil to have, or French dressing to have like 30% vegetable oil for a lot of years. And they were requiring, um, they have really stringent requirements on infant formula. And it, it's to the point that you have to use vegetable oil, even if it's not necessarily required. And that part is, like I say, a little bit hazier. We're not really sure why that has been, but we do know that, you know, they're, they're seed oil farmers, soybean farmers, for example, donate a lot to the AHA. They 
do have significant lobbying in Congress. And so there's not a direct line there, but there are certainly some some fishy implications. So I'm approaching this issue from a place of extreme ignorance, but that's probably helpful uh, because at least a segment of our listeners, I'm, I'm sure, aren't super familiar with the seed oil discourse. So as someone who isn't an expert in on the issue, but is interested in it, you know, I, I know people who are nutritionists and who work in the nutrition industry. And I'm thinking in particular of someone I know who just finished her master's in nutrition and now works in a hospital. And she's conservative leaning, but, you know, broadly apolitical and isn't really aware of the kind of the seed oil discourse in, in our circles. And I was asking her about it because I'm curious. And what she was saying, and something that I've heard from a couple other folks as well, is that it's less that seed oils specifically are bad for you and more that they are often in foods that are bad for you for any number of other reasons. And that it's that seed oils are essentially associated with unhealthy outcomes because they're often in processed foods or foods that have other things that are unhealthy, but that there's less substantive evidence for the fact that seed oils specifically are bad for you. I'm curious. I mean, this is again, as someone who it's, I'm speaking to someone who obviously knows what she's talking about, but I, I'm, I don't know the science. Are there sort of substantive studies to show that seed oils specifically are, are bad for you? Or is it more just that they are associated with other things? That are bad? I would say it's both. Obviously, those other things are bad for you. Um, and like, you know, highly processed food comes with a litany of problems. But I there are studies specifically for seed oils. And the one I think that is best is this one that was done in Norway. And effectively, they studied this group of men, it was like over 9,000 men who were in mental institutions, which it was, it was a, it's kind of a morbid setting, but it's very useful because in those institutions, you can track precisely what someone's eating. Um, And so I think, I think that study was probably the most, I'm sorry, it was not in Norway, it was in Minnesota, the Minnesota coronary experiment. Um, I think that's the most helpful because what they did was they tracked the diet of these people and they found that it, you know, it covered a a broad age range. It covered, like I said, 9,000, 9,400 participants. And they found that the group that was eating, they had one group eating vegetable oil and the other group was eating animal fats. And they found that the people who were consuming vegetable oil and like, you know, trying to control all the other variables as much as possible, it's difficult with food. They found that the people who were consuming vegetable oil, the differences in cholesterol were not any different from what what other scientists have found, right? There was higher cholesterol in those consuming saturated fats versus those consuming the unsaturated fats or the, the vegetable oils. But the people who were consuming the vegetable oils actually had more incidences of heart disease and heart problems. And the people who were consuming saturated fats were having less instances. So it turns out that I I think that study really demonstrates that there was not, the problem is not really the cholesterol, which is a lot of times what we're pointed to, but with the actual fats themselves. And because there were so many other like points that were controlled in that study, I think that's it's a pretty good, pretty good look at it. Obviously, there's more that can be done, and there's there are more questions there. And I'm not a nutritionist. Um, yeah, I, I think that that study was pretty convincing to me. Something that um, actually, before we hopped on to record this episode, my colleague Tom, who wrote, uh, who kind of he helps out with uh, production on the podcast, I kind of I, I told I gave him my seed oil spiel basically, and he mentioned that he's been reading labels now. 
And this morning he was he was reading the back of like a granola bar label and saw that there were seed oils in it. And, um, this is, it's, it's interesting, like hearing that because, um, I know so many people who, once they hear about the, the, just, um, the presence of seed oil in everything. And you've mentioned this, I mean, it's, it's used in the, just the, the flexibility of its usage. Um, it's in everything from food to shampoos to baby formula. So it is in, you know, just about everything we eat. And it's extremely hard to find healthy alternatives. People like, I mean, me and my husband, we're very fortunate where like, we go out to a farm in like the middle of Pennsylvania and get our food from there because it's, they use regenerative mark, uh, farming practices and it's, you know, ethically sourced and we trust their, their food production um, and it's seed oil free. But we realize that most Americans simply do not have the time or maybe the money to be able to afford food that isn't proce- heavily processed like that or include seed oils. It's it's so hard to find. I mean, even healthy, like, you know, options that seem like they'd be healthy are sometimes laced in seed oils, canola oils. I've even seen organic foods advertise themselves as, as being organic, but with like organic canola oil in them. So you go to Whole Foods and you're you're going to come across uh, seed oils anyways, no matter um, how healthy you're trying to be. And uh, it does take a lot of time and resources and energy to be able to kind of work around just the presence of those ingredients in everything we consume. So it does kind of present, I guess, a class issue um, in a way that I'd be tr- interested in hearing your thoughts on is how can Americans, you know, how can we be understanding of the fact that readily accessible food, not even just fast food, which obviously is the the most the simplest option to refer to, but literally everything else we come across in grocery stores is just much more re- readily available. Especially if you're um, making food for your family or you're you know a two uh, two income household where both parents are working, or maybe maybe you're a single mother. Just being conscious of those you know those different dynamics that may make it. Uh, may inhibit the ability to actually like go free of seed oils, which I mean, argue, you know, it obviously is the healthiest option to do because it is terrible for your body. But what are your thoughts on kind of, I guess, the class contours of the issue and how, like, I'm sure the US government is not interested in, in just cutting seed oil production because it's such a uh, lucrative industry. So what, just what are your thoughts on, on kind of the, the concept of class as it fits into this, this discussion? Yeah, no, it's a it's a good question because it does it does tend to break down along the lines of who can who can afford to live a seed oil free lifestyle and who can afford to like to gain that knowledge, right? Usually the people I find who are aware of these things are are young but also, you know, educated upper middle class. Like, you know, I I'm not talking about seed oils with the homeless man. He doesn't care. So yeah, it, it, it presents a real difficulty because, like I said, it's hard to work around the way that our our food system operates. And yeah, it, it's expensive. So uh, solutions, yeah, I, I don't really have any easy solutions or, or viable ones, I guess, things that seem like likely to happen. I do think, as with anything, that the conversation has to start with the culture so if, if we're changing the conversation on these things, if we're talking about it, if we are implanting some of these ideas in people's minds and, and making it more of a mainstream issue, making it, you know, for example, I have a friend who 
likes to um, call fast food restaurants and complain about the presence of seed oils in the foods. You know, is he going to change it? Probably not. But things like that that start to push, you know, fast food restaurants to say, oh, you know, there's a there's beginning to be a percentage of my customers that care that, for example, Chick-fil-A fries and peanut oil versus other oils or cares that McDonald's used to use beef towel for French fries and wants it to be that way again. If we as consumers can kind of push back in that direction, if there's a critical um, minority to say, hey, we care about these things we want um, we want food that is a little bit healthier, even if it's still fast food and it's still cheap and it's still not the best thing for us. I think those are small ways that we can kind of move the needle toward a healthier society. And I think, yeah, the bigger <laughs> the bigger task would be kind of changing some of these FDA regulations and making that a priority as voters. Which, again, viable option. I don't see that as being one of them, but it, a girl can dream, I guess. It seems like something that we've sort of been implicitly touching on is that there are certain sort of anti-capitalist implications to some of this discussion. And this is something that I have also sort of, it's a conclusion that I've also arrived at in writing about the environment and conservation. Like in contrast to, I think a lot of conservatives, like I actually think climate change is a big deal, but that issue and just the broader issues of environmental degradation and conservation expose limits to, I think, sort of free market thinking. It's not to say that decentralized economies aren't a good, generally speaking, or that socialism is a good answer, but it's also that the kind of worship of market mechanisms at any cost, even at the expense of these massive concentrations of economic power that clearly don't have the nation's best interests at heart, which characterizing a previous generation of conservative thinking on economics um, has severe limitations. And in the seed oil sort of issues that we're talking about, it's both the class stuff that you and Marlo were just discussing, but also obviously the power of large, powerful economic concentrations of power to lobby organizations that are supposed to be performing one function, which is keeping us healthy, and completely corrupt and pervert their functions in ways that make it difficult to trust a lot of our institutions. You know, that's anyone who sort of spends time in intellectual conservative circles in DC is familiar with the, the, this sort of skepticism of what is broadly called free market fundamentalism. But I wonder if, I mean, this is kind of an interesting aspect of it that I think is really important, but isn't discussed quite enough, which is the sort of nutrition side of it. But it seems like it's part of this larger kind of sense that, like, the sort of free market economic thinking of the 1990s, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, is sort of hollow or has severe limitations. And I wonder how the kind of seed oil and nutrition discussion slots into that um, in your kind of writing about it. Yeah, I think I would say that there, it seems to me there's a broad spectrum between the free market fundamentalism and, you know, full on socialism on the other end, um, which I think, I think you're saying the seed oils in particular just highlight to me the fact that it's not like what we're seeing is not just a product of free market fundamentalism. It is actually, there's a lot of lobbying on behalf of, for example, the big four meat farmers. So it's not, it's not really just straight capitalism, even as like, as we see it. So to say that the solution to that is, you know, some kind of government intervention in the opposite direction, I think is just to recognize reality. There is a lot of, a lot of corruption in the food industry. And yeah, the the main players are few and very large. So one of the things I talk about is kind of the 
the homogenization of small farms as a result of this kind of efficiency focus in our in our food because it is much more um, profitable to plant corn and soy, for example. That is what, you know, I don't know, 90% of, of a vast majority of farmers are planting. And it really is not not only not profitable, but actually most farmers are losing money to try to do something alternative that is better for the soil, better for the environment, better for our health, but it, it's not better for their survival, for their business. So it is, I think... I think it's both and you have the problems of kind of a a free market fundamentalism paired with the kind of corrupt forces that are actually shaping that free market free market fundamentalism into something something else which I think you know we have asked for that in some sense but it's also yeah there there is certainly some what is the word there the forces of of these bigger for in the meat industry or like these these bigger forces at, at the upper ends of agriculture production are consolidating. Um, and I think that's, I think we can't ignore that. Right. And to your point, Carmel, it's, it's not necessarily, as you were saying, and I obviously agree, it's not necessarily that something like socialism or this massive new sort of government regulatory apparatus is the solution. It's, I think, at least partially, it's more sort of a shift in tone among a lot of the young conservatives we know, where there was a period of time where sort of economic efficiency was worshipped, right, among conservatives. And uh, there were sort of long screeds written about how awesome it is that you can get something cheaper at the grocery store, you know, or or it's more available or it's more abundant, et cetera. And it seems like the seed oil discourse is part of a shift away from that, where there's an understanding that, I mean, particularly in, in the example of seed oils, that economic efficiency in this case and sort of cost-cutting measures actually has led to worse health outcomes for people. And that doesn't necessarily come with a prescriptive remedy that militates in favor of government or more government or whatever, but it's, it's, it's a sort of an understanding that economic efficiency isn't always the be-all, end-all of politics. And actually it has you know problems sometimes. And I think that to me, that's where I see a lot of the kind of localism, the interest in local farming and the alienation from sort of big corporations that, that might have been lauded by a previous generation of conservatives manifests. It's, 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 a, it's, it's more of a sense of not necessarily that government should be doing something, but just that markets aren't necessarily a deity to be worshipped. Um, anyways, I mean, I, to, to, does that make sense sort of in terms of where the, the seed oil discourse fits in? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess like one recent subject that also ties into all of this that I'd be interested in hearing. And you talk about this in your piece, um, but I think it'll be especially interesting for listeners to hear um, is, and I think this also loops into what Nate was saying, was the uh, baby formula shortage and the presence of seed oils, of course, and in, in baby food, while there are alternatives in European brands that do not have these ingredients in them. Could you talk a little bit about about that issue, uh, first off, and perhaps also how it was, ex- it still is extremely difficult to get those better brands um, circulated in the US um, because of kind of the, the concentration of um, some of the, the baby formula brands that are prevalent at US stores. I think there's, there's a handful of them that 
basically comprise the baby formula industry. Um, and maybe, maybe there are some contours there also between um, like how regulation um, and on behalf of, you know, some American bureaucracies and health bureaucracies can actually uh, hurt health outcomes because they're preventing the, the circulation of actually healthier brands that do not have um, the presence of these seed oils. Yeah, absolutely. I think what, what we're talking about is uh, it's a little bit in effect protectionist of the U.S. formula industry, which is is interesting to me. I won't get into that. But the what's happened is our our regulation on baby formulas is very stringent, um, as with all things baby, as I have recently discovered um, having my first daughter. But the what what is um, the effect of that is that the ingredients that are in these things are actually not, um, they're not good for infants. And obviously it's, it's kind of a conundrum because there are a lot of things that infants shouldn't be consuming. And, you know, I'll, I'll touch on the third rail of motherhood and say, I think that nothing is better for a baby than breastfeeding, but the, you know, for, for the mother who can't do that, there's really not any good option in American brands. And so a lot of women, look to these European brands and it's kind of a a black market, if you will, of um, women ordering from overseas because the way that Europe regulates infant formula is just better than what we do. Things that they keep out, the things that they allow in are um, superior. And there was, as I talk about in the article, there was a group in San Francisco, two moms who started a company and they were trying to make what would have been the American European infant formula. Um, and it was, it was very crunchy. I don't know for sure that the first version did not have vegetable oil in it. I will say that because the ingredients, we, we can't find them anymore. But what I do know is that they, it was a much cleaner formula as far as ingredients that they had to keep out. Um, and I won't bore you with all of those details, but what effectively happened was they were shut down by the FDA because they weren't stringent enough in their in their production. And I say stringent only in, in terms of what the FDA, FDA requires, which is not actually the same as what is healthy. And so when they reproduced their new formula, it is it contains a lot of these same chemicals that most crunchy moms are complaining about. And so it's it's just kind of amusing that what is supposed to be protecting us, what is supposed to be protecting infants um, is actually, I would say, harming them, not in a, in a immediately visible way, but in a long-term healthy way. We're being harmed. So I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how we get around that as far as, as um, you know, having, having European standards for our formula it would require a lot of a lot of change at a an institutional level, which is is not expected. In terms of the sort of political implications of this issue, I think you were right to point out earlier uh, earlier in the podcast that the salience of seed oils specifically might not be a winning electoral message. Um, I don't know how many people you're going to turn out on like stump speeches about seed oil necessarily. A lot of, a lot of our friends would show up, but I don't think that (laughs) it's enough to uh, put together like a winning electoral coalition, but nutrition more broadly, I think has been a political issue. You know, the, the content of school lunches, for example, um, 
was an issue in the Bush era. And, you know, Michelle Obama's sort of big uh, crusade was, was nutrition. It, it seems like that is something that is easily understandable as a political message and also obviously permeates everyone's lives, particularly working in middle-class people. Nutrition matters. It's something that you can talk about that they understand. And it's a way to make people's lives better, which I think ultimately is what politicians should be seeking to do, ideally. I wonder if there's, you know, it's not something that you hear Republicans talk about very much. And I wonder if there is sort of a broader conservative nutrition agenda that conservatives could be talking about and running on. Seed oils would ostensibly be a part of that, but it would probably be a broader kind of discussion. But as someone who's written about that, what would you like to see the kind of political conservative nutritionist agenda actually look like? Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think I, the one idea that comes to mind is is kind of following the Michelle Obama vein and tying it to school lunches, because that's something that is directly related to politics. Um, and it's something that politics actually affects, right? We, we don't want to get into the realm of politicians saying, oh, you know, vote for me if you don't like hamburgers or, you know, whatever. I, it, it can get really weird really quickly. And, and voting on our food choices is not really a place that I see this going. But I, I think school lunches, I think, you know, FDA regula- regulations, I think it, it, you can tie that to the broader administrative state and say, hey, we're, we're interested in cutting back um, some of these bad regulations. There, there are a lot of ways that conservatives would be very comfortable approaching this that would, that would do both things. It would be good for them electorally, and it would also be good for us healthfully and in, in kind of combating this bad science. Great. Well, we are out of time, but thanks again for joining us, Carmel. Um, It was really, really interesting and an underrated subject we covered today. If people want to read more from you, where can they find you? Yep. I am at The American Conservative. I'm a contributing editor, and I'm also on Twitter, and that is at Carmel Elizabeth. Thanks again for being with us. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the intercollegiate review, select modern age articles, ISI books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI. 